Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for joining me this Monday, March 6th. I hope you had a great weekend. You found something to do that brought you a little bit of joy. I did some uh, world-class sleeping, and that always puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I love those days when you don't set an alarm and you just kind of lay there and you stretch and you think, ah, maybe I'll go back to sleep. (sighs) But here we are again, and we are that much closer to the April 4th election that we are going to be paying great attention to in the time between now and then. We are going to talk to some of the older people involved in runoff elections. We are, of course, going to talk to mayoral candidates, Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. Paul, we will be talking to at 3.30 today. If you have a question you would like me to ask Mr. Vallis, uh, between now and then, go ahead and text it in, 773-763-763. 9278. If you've never done it before, it's 773-763-WCPT. And um, please, <laughs> uh, while I appreciate any and all responses, I would prefer that you not release your invective on me and ask, just text me, straightforward either questions, specific questions, or specific topics that you would like me to address. When we talk to uh, Paul Vallis, that is coming up at 3.30 today. So remember to get those, remember to get those, get those questions texted in. You know, There's always a lot of news on Monday, but I really want to spend, I really want to spend a lot of time letting you know something that you may have missed. It's been reported in a lot of different places. This was the reporting from Popular Information, that Judd Legum newsletter. Walgreens, our very own Chicago-based Walgreens has decided preemptively that even in states where they are legal, they're not going to be dispensing abortion pills. There are at least 10 states in this country where abortion is still legal. And Walgreens has decided, even in those states, they're not going to dispense this medicine. Why? Well, because that's what Republicans ask them to do. You remember that uh, Kansas Attorney General Chris Kobach, Kobach, who decided he was going to be, um, he was going to go after voters and he made a big stink a while back about, you know, fraudulent voters, and it was just nonsense, and it was proven to be nonsense. Well, he's back. 
he um, was one of the signatories to a letter sent to Walgreens and also other major pharmacies, but Walgreens has agreed to do it. Say, please don't, don't give out that mefepristone. Don't do that, okay? Just, just don't. You know, just don't. Hello? And Walgreens is just rolling over. Instead of saying, we appreciate your stance on this, but we follow federal and state laws with what we do and don't do. Walgreens uh, sent Mr. Kobach a letter back. Uh, this was uh, February 17th. And uh, they wanted to assure him Walgreens, this is a quote, Walgreens does not intend to dispense mifepristone within your state and does not intend to ship it into your state from any of our other pharmacies. Remember Kansas, where uh, they had a chance right after Roe v. Wade was tanked, they had a chance to rewrite their state laws, their state constitution and ban abortion, and they overwhelmingly came out and defeated it? Yeah. Walgreens, completely legally able to distribute and dispense this medicine, has decided for fear of making the Republicans mad, they're not going to do it. Okay, I know it's legal. Yes, I know, I know it's it's I know it's legal and we still can, but I don't want to make you mad or any other Republicans mad, so we'll just roll over. Now you might wonder how did uh, CVS respond cuz they got the same letter. CVS responded by saying that it will dispense mifepristone wherever it is legally permissible. Rite Aid, the other big chain, said it was monitoring the latest federal, state, and legal and regulatory developments, but didn't agree to just roll over the way Walgreens did. (sighs) Most... Abortions in this country happen very early in a pregnancy. And mefepristone is given, and it brings on a woman's period. It is safe. It has been FDA approved for decades. It is a known quantity. And it is, in many places, very, very legal. Legal to take. Legal to get a prescription, legal for pharmacists to give it, legal for companies to ship it, and uh, the vast majority of um, chains responded to this ridiculous, absurd request by the attorney general in a state that has told him at the ballot box that they support a woman's right to abortion. But Walgreens has rolled over and gone belly up. I um, I don't know how you want to handle this. One of the closest pharmacies to my house 
um, is Walgreens. I used to use a little independently owned pharmacy in um, in my village, um, and they closed up and went out of business. And so the next closest pharmacy for me was a Walgreens. And I don't, you know, I'm very lucky, even though I am a senior, I don't take a whole armful of medications every day. There's one prescription that I have regularly refilled my thyroid medicine that I had at Walgreens. Since this news broke, my, um, my insurance company and most medical insurance companies have this. You know, they have an arm where they do prescriptions by mail. The advantage is usually you save a little money and you get a 90-day supply instead of like a 30-day supply. So um, I contacted them on Friday, and I told them I had this prescription at Walgreens, but I wanted them to take it over, and I transferred it. If I had not, because this is a recurring medication, it's easy to get it delivered by mail. If this were something else, and when it, I need something else, if I get to the point where I need an antibiotic for something or some sort of prescription cough medicine or something, I am uh, not going to Walgreens. I have, um, and most of us do, where your doctor is. Most medical centers, hospitals have created these um, online portals. Northwestern has one. Um, um, North, uh, North Shore University Health Systems has one. And you can go into your personal settings and you can uh, set a pharmacy that you want. Anytime your doctor wants to write a prescription, um, you can have an automatic go-to with the information on your medical records. Or usually, a lot of times, especially if you don't have a lot of medicine, your doctor will just say, let us know where you want us to fill this. I'm not going to use Walgreens anymore. Not only am I not going to send any of my prescriptions there, I'm not going to shop there anymore. You know what? That um, cheap Maybelline mascara that I like, I can get that a lot of other places. Anything that I can get at Walgreens, I can get at Target or CVS. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Before I so rudely interrupted myself, I was talking about the places that you can go to get anything you could get at Walgreens. You can go to your CVS pharmacy. You can go to Target. You can go to a lot of grocery stores to get the same kind of medical supplies, the same kind of drugstore makeup, and other things that you go to Walgreens for. I'm not shopping there anymore. I had one prescription on their books, and I have moved it. Any prescriptions I need in the future, I'm going to make sure that my um, medical portal reflects the fact that um, I'm going to start using the local CVS now. Maybe it's a little bit, maybe it's like a four-minute longer drive, but it's a small price to pay for Walgreens without legal necessity responding to this letter from Republican attorneys general saying, 
Well, you know, we really don't like the fact that there's abortion. And yeah, okay, it's legal. But why don't you stop selling the pills and stop shipping the pills that most women use? Okay, sounds good to me, said Walgreens. Okay, I'll do that. And I'm not the only one who has decided to no longer do business with Walgreens. The state of California. Gavin Newsom put out this statement. California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk. We're done. So how, um, you know, you were, you were so afraid. You were so afraid the Republicans would be mad at you that you forgot about the rest of us. You know, the majority, every poll, every survey that has been done in my adult life has shown repeatedly that the vast majority of people in this country believe that a woman and her doctor alone should make her health decisions. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Okay, the computer. Okay, the computer. Whoa. Um, I'm going to have to shut off clean feed, Paul, because I was getting feedback. Um, the computer gods are being unkind to me today. Um, so let's just... Whoa, that was an interesting sound. <laughs> okay, it's going to be a little bit of rock and roll today. Or as, as Santita Jackson likes to say, hey, kids, it's live radio. So um, long story short, I don't know where exactly I cut out, but I wanted you to know that the state of California has made the announcement that they are no longer going to do any business with Walgreens since Walgreens has made this uh, preemptive decision to stop selling abortion pills in states where they are legal. This is not abiding by the law. This is cowering. This is cowardice in the face of Republican pressure. That's uh, it's just inexcusable. So um, next time you decide you need drugstore makeup, go somewhere else. Next time you decide you need vitamins, go somewhere else. Next time you have a prescription that needs filling, I beg of you, go somewhere else. They're clearly afraid of what Republicans will do to them. I think they should be more afraid of us. I think that, um, I think that if their bottom line starts taking a hit, all of a sudden we're going to see an announcement that they've rethought this and they've decided that like the other big chains, Rite Aid, CVS, that they're going to follow the law. That's what I'm expecting, that they will follow the law. I know what a radical concept. They will follow the law, which is exactly what they should have done in the first place. What what's going on there? I mean, is this what they've secretly wanted to do all along and the letter gives them cover 
the letter from all these Republican attorneys general that says, yeah, we know that legally you can do this, but we're just asking you nicely. Just stop. Just stop. Because we don't like this whole abortion thing. And yeah, maybe the law it might be legal, but we don't like it. So just go along with us or, you know, we'll make your life difficult. Well, companies respond to that kind of pressure. So to counter that, we have to bring pressure on the other side. Walgreens has to know that they are going to lose business, a lot more business than they would lose on the Mephapristone question. So let's do it. What do you say? Let's, let's boycott Walgreens. If you have a prescription on file there, Go to another pharmacy and, and they will, they are legally bound to, <laughs> legally bound, because you know, you think they'd care about the law. They are legally bound to transfer your prescriptions if you tell them to. You know those three prescriptions you've got for me? Yeah, I want to transfer them to CVS. I'm not using your pharmacy anymore. We may be only individuals. I'm only one person. But in the in the Chicago area, if everybody who is listening to this show today, and if you're listening to this show, you believe in democracy. You believe in following the law. And you believe that it is wrong to roll over in the face of bullies. And that's exactly what Walgreens is doing. All you have to do is go online, find your nearest CVS, your nearest Rite Aid. Maybe you're lucky enough to still live in a community that has an independent pharmacy. Call up Walgreens, say, I want all my prescriptions transferred over here. They probably won't ask why. Doesn't mean you can't tell them anyway. We are going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, God willing and the computer works, We're going to be talking to our good friend, Spencer Critchley. He is the author of Patriots of Two Nations. He does a podcast called Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We'll be back with Spencer right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of my favorite regular guests is Spencer Critchley. His book is Patriots of Two Nations, and he does a podcast that is called Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Spencer joins us now. And Spencer, um, I have to warn you, this is, you know, you've been doing this show with me for a while. So I'm having some computer problems today. So, Spencer, you may be on your own for the next hour. Oh, no. Just letting you know. <laughs> well, Just you know, giving you the warning. You know I can talk. I'm not sure you want to leave yourself open to that possibility. So do everything you can to get those computers working. Yeah. Just you just you want to say I'm Spencer Critchley and you're listening to WCPT. We could practice it r- right now. It's sure. it's the Spencer Critchley show. Yes, I'm new to WCPT, but you're going to be hearing a lot from me in the next hour. Oh. Sounds good. So, oh, where do we begin today? There has been so much going on. And to to be quite honest, I sort of, for the last few weeks, have kind of taken my eye off the ball of things that are going on nationally because we've been so 
absorbed here in the Chicago area with our mayoral runoff and our aldermanic races. Um, what has happened that I should have been paying attention to, Spencer? Oh, gosh, man, I, there's been a lot. Um, I guess, you know, probably the overarching story from my point of view is that predictably uh, the hopes for the Republican Party starting to come to its senses and starting to rediscover some kind of moral center following its shellacking in the um, fall election. Well, Spencer, if that's the case, though, why weren't people... Why weren't people more sane at CPAC? CPAC, um, you know, this meeting where it's usually the uh, Republicans get together and they toss around their ideas and they get a lot of excitement whipped up. It was an ultra MAGA far right crowd and they were espousing the worst of the worst when it came to ideas. And in the few pictures I saw of the audience, it was, shall we say, sparsely attended? Yeah, um, I think that's that's a good sign. But the problem is that the Republican Party has not renounced any of this stuff. And you have Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. And they continue to support these insurrectionist lies. And the fundamental situation continues now. I think that the CPAC situation is probably more a sign of Matt Gates. I'm sorry, not Matt Gates. Matt Schlapp, um, you know, who runs CPAC, having a tremendous PR problem right now with the accusations of sexual harassment by a uh, Herschel Walker campaign worker, and nothing like nothing will cause people to treat someone as radioactive on the Republican side, like accusations of sexual harassment involving, you know, alleged man on man, sexual sexual harassment. So and for those listeners who don't know what we're talking about, um, what's what Spencer alluded to was uh, a campaign worker for Herschel Walker accused Matt Schlapp, who's a big um, who's a big Republican, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes guy, of um, inappropriate touching, very inappropriate touching, shall we say. And uh, these allegations are still being investigated, at least as far as I know, Spencer. Right. You know, it's, it's important to differentiate between charges and convictions, of course. Um, Match Lap has done plenty of other things for which I think he can be judged harshly, which he's done in public on the record. Uh, unfortunately, I have so many other enablers of what's been going on lately. So I think, you know, there's a you can you can look on the bright side of CPAC having low attendance and many of the supposedly more moderate um, Republican candidates staying away. But the trouble is that it's still entirely likely that Trump will be the nominee. And it, doesn't and it really seems to grow more likely every day. Yeah, because the party cannot do one of the fundamental uh, functions of a party, which is to filter out outright insanity and corruption and evil. Um, You know, people have such a dim view of politicians and political parties. 
um, which I think is unrealistically cynical, actually, in, in a lot of cases. They, they overlook the important role that all of this plays in our lives. Um, and, but one of the functions of a functioning political party within a democratic system is they are supposed to prevent the outright crazies and criminals and fascists uh, from coming to the fore. But the Republican Party has completely surrendered to the worst elements in its party and is being run by those people. And, you know, as as I've said many times, I used to avoid this kind of language because I really felt it was overused on the left. And it, it was a case of, you know, crying wolf all the time and also a disservice and disrespectful to people who actually have lived under fascism. Uh, to call everybody a fascist or everybody a criminal and everybody corrupt. But now we are at that situation where we are seeing the rise of American fascism, and it is not an exaggeration to describe it as that. And the Republican Party has surrendered to that and is, will apparently follow it wherever it goes. So th- th- that remains, you know, the chief source of concern. The party continues to be led by Donald Trump, which should be unimaginable. And yet here we are. If, as some people speculate, Ron DeSantis enters, formally enters the presidential race in May after the Florida legislature has wrapped up, how do you think that will change things? Will it be too late? Will Trump have too much momentum by then? Well, you know, we can't predict the future. There's always, you know, a temptation to do that and, and pundit. You can predict the future, Spencer. I know you can. <laughs> I've done it once or twice to my to my enduring sadness. Um, but, you know, pundits love to predict the future because it makes you sound smart. But, you know, obviously none of us can know. Um, however, I think there's a lot to the uh, often expressed opinion that Ron DeSantis doesn't know what he's getting in for if he goes up against Trump. And having more than a small number of primary candidates in the Republican Party, of course, is all to the good for Trump. Because a divided field uh, will just pave the way for him as, as somebody who continues to have a larger base of support. Also, Trump is indicating that just like with the presidential election last time, he doesn't care what the primary, how the primary election turns out. If he loses in the primaries, it'll be because it's rigged, of course, because Trump has convinced himself and his followers that the only source of truth and goodness in the world is Donald J. Trump. And so he will continue to fire up his movement, and he'll just claim that the, the primary elections were rigged. As I say, it's just yet more persecution of Donald Trump as the personification of his persecuted followers. And we'll continue to face this crisis, and the Republican Party will continue to abdicate its responsibility. Also, you know, it is probably not a radical thought for your listeners, but so many people across the country are looking hopefully at people like Ron DeSantis and referring to him as as relatively moderate. Ron DeSantis is also a frightening figure, uh, every bit as demagogic and irresponsible as Trump, and yet smarter and more self-disciplined. Who on earth calls Ron DeSantis a moderate he is single-handedly turning Florida into the most fascist state in the country. Who looks at that and says, oh, yeah, he's the moderate? Well, the thing is that I, I, I'd like to separate policy disagreements from 
the deeper problem that Trumpism represents of actual fascism, you know, which means authoritarian rule where all, all that matters is power and it goes hand in hand with gangsterism. Um, so one can imagine Ron DeSantis as somebody with whom one just, you know, fundamentally disagrees on policy. Let's say he's, you know, a, a radical Republican who wants to slash government programs, um, who has views on education and social policy that we deeply disagree with. Well, that's, that's normal politics. You might be very unhappy at the way it's going, but if that's what people are voting for and that's what they want, and he wins elections fair and square, that is how democracy works. But what concerns me is the deliberate demagoguery where it's not just that he has policies one might disagree with, but that he's doing exactly the same stuff Trump did. And this is the guy who was so enthusiastic about Trump from the get-go that he remember he had his baby dressed in a, a Trump, was it a Trump onesie or something or a MAGA hat or something? Oh, God, I'd, I'd forgotten. Way, way back. There's so much. You can't keep it all in your mind, right? But oh. the far deeper problem, from my point of view, is that, that it's the fanning of fear and hatred against transgendered people, you know, um, other kinds of minorities, the, the critical race theory stuff. Now, again, we can disagree about critical race theory. You know, we can debate that. We can, we can and should debate education curriculum. That's all legitimate democratic activity. And again, even if you're really unhappy with how it goes, that's the way it goes in a democracy. But when, pe- when people switch from that to using it in a transparent attempt to fan fear and hatred to build power, you know, getting migrants from Texas because he couldn't apparently find enough in Florida and shipping them up to the Northeast and, and the, you know, just the cruelty and the demagoguery involved in that. That's, that's what's frightening because that is a solid through line from Donald Trump. And that's that solid through line. We have to draw the comparison. It also goes back through Hitler and, and Mussolini. It's this, it's, it's, it's just demagoguery one one You identify these aliens and foreigners, you know, these members of minority groups. And so often it's been gay people. You know, Hitler had a huge problem with gay people. Um, Stalin did. Putin does. Or it's, of course, the Jews, you know. and Or where we are now, all of the above. I mean, one of the speakers at CPAC called for the eradication, eradication of anybody who's trans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he will claim he wanted to, you know, he's parsing his language as they always do, claiming he said he wants to eliminate transgenderism from the from the public sphere or something. But of course, he knows what the language, what the language means to the people hearing him. He's not lecturing a bunch of linguists and philosophy professors. He's <laughs> lecturing people. You know, he's firing up people who want to hear language like let's eliminate the transgendered people, which leads very quickly so what we've seen is incredible, these incredible spikes of violence uh, targeting all these folks in all these different groups. And it's just, you know, history could not be more clear on this. Um, this, this, is, this is the same demagoguery, which means uh, firing up fear and hatred of foreigners and minorities. And the demagogue uses that to build power for themselves while claiming to be protecting, you know, their constituency from these imaginary threats. And that is that has not changed. So that's what concerns me 
the most. And DeSantis is doing exactly the same thing. And as you know, as we know, he's currently the strongest alternative to Trump, but he's he could be worse than Trump because he appears to be quite a lot smarter and more self-disciplined. We're going to take a break. I'm talking to Spencer Critchley. He's written a book called Patriots of Two Nations, which talks uh, and explains the difference in the appeal of the uh, MAGAs and the rest of us. Uh, a divide that seems to be wider and uh, the people on the other side seem more radical than ever. I want to talk with Spencer more about that when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Spencer Critchley. He does a podcast. He does a podcast called uh, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. He also has written a book called Patriots of Two Nations, and we've discussed his book before, and it it he explains the different mindset, the different emotional working in people who are Trump supporters versus uh, basically the rest of us. I've always known, Spencer, I'm not naive. I've known there were people who were homophobic and racist. But to me, and frankly, people who were stupid, but I always thought that they were a minority. Now, not only does it seem like they're, they exist in much larger numbers than I ever realized, but they are getting cr- more and more cruel as time goes on. It's like the cruelty of three years ago isn't enough for today. You got to take it, take it further. What is going on with that? I mean, you know, you talked about how people are listening to messages emotionally. Zito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations, and he does a podcast called um, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. The book that he wrote is about how the emotional appeal of the arguments that bring people to the to the MAGA side. As I, as I don't know exactly where my audio dropped, but Spencer, it seems that there are more of these people than I ever suspected and that the cruelty, even from just a few years ago, is ramped up exponentially. How do you explain that? Well, you know, the, the thing that I really want to emphasize and that I emphasize in the book is that as tempting as it is to look at, you know, these people who support Trump and who continue to as, you know, morally depraved or unpatriotic or gullible or stupid or whatever, I really want to emphasize that, um, as as the great Pogo Possum said many years ago in the Pogo comic strip, (laughs) we have met the enemy and he is us. And what I mean by that, and this is in the book, is that really all of this is in human nature. And the way a demagogue like Trump succeeds, but it's also true of um, dictators on the left, like Lenin or Stalin or Mao, for example, is that they know how to harness the worst in human nature, which is there in all people of all kinds. And it's just that Trump offers a particular kind of appeal um, by appealing to a particular combination of, of fear and hatred. 
And I really think one of the people who was most insightful on this remains Sigmund Freud, who has fallen out of fashion in psychology for various reasons. You know, some of his his, um, theories have been superseded by science. Uh, But some of his core insights remain very powerful. And one way, I think, of helping people on the left to understand this situation is to realize that there are two very different um, philosophical strands that still influence the way our the way we think. Whether we're familiar with these people or not, we, we are under the influence of their ideas. And that is Freud and Marx. And Marx believed that human nature is essentially good, and the only thing that makes people greedy and violent is capitalism or private property, the exploitation of private property and the exploitation of workers. So whether you're a Marxist or not, and, and you know most people are not, Many people on the left are still influenced by that view of human nature, which which Marx got from Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, before him. The idea that, you know, it's, it's sometimes summarized as a noble savage, that people in their natural state are generous and kind and communitarian, and they only become evil when you introduce society with private property and hierarchies and classes and that sort of thing. And Freud said, no. People have the death drive within them. They have the desire to do harm just because it feels good to be violent, or they have the desire to just take what they want, uh, to commit robbery and rape and homicide and all this stuff. Is in, it's part of human nature. So you can see those are two fundamentally different views. It turns out that science has shown that Freud was closer to the truth. And Marx's view of human nature has proven to be unscientific um, based on, you know, more recent research in archaeology and psychology and neurobiology and all the rest of it. Human nature is a mix of the admirable and beautiful and just the worst, darkest, most horrible, monstrous stuff you can imagine. And it's all in there. And so this is it's the more we look at Trumpists and say, well, those people are just obviously uniquely depraved. Unfortunately, we continue. we, We make it more likely that the suffering and evil will continue. I think really in order to get past this, we have to understand it at a deeper level and realize that we're, we're all implicated in it um, just by the virtue of being human. Okay, but it's pretty hard not to demonize somebody who uh, is so full of hate. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess if, you're, if you have completely embraced a religion that tells you, you know, gay people are are evil. Maybe I could understand that. But there are so many people who seem so full of hate. And uh, I, I, I can't help myself, but I do look down on them. And I, I do think that they are lesser. Yeah, I, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any standards or we shouldn't judge people's behavior as bad. You know, I think that people who are doing this need to be confronted. Uh, they, and they, we need not to just pretend that, oh, well, you know, to each his own or people have different political opinions. It's also very dangerous, I think, at, at a time like this in history for us to say, well, I, I'm not interested in politics and I don't talk about politics. The survival of our society depends on all of us being interested in politics. There's no way to escape it. There's an old saying, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. It's, it's going to affect you one way or the other. So I, well, I think that people who say they're not interested in politics, they see politics as this big thing that's over there. 
politics is who we are, how we live our lives, how we interact with one another, um, you know, with the, the things that we agree to to keep ourselves safe. I mean, to me, politics is life, daily life, the things we do, the things we think, the things we care about. No, absolutely. It's as Aristotle said. It's 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 fundamental to being a human being. You know, we we need to live with each other, and um, you can't really live a full life if you're not involved in politics. <clears throat> this, by the way, is another legacy of Marx on the left: the contempt for politics, because Marx felt that politics was only necessary because we had such a corrupt system that uh, pitted people against each other, and that once capitalism was overthrown we would all discover our natural shared communal interest and there'd be no more conflicts of self-interest and no more need for politics. The state would fade away and it would just essentially be administrative and there'd be no more politics. Did he know anybody? Did he know people? Did he have friends? You know, how could you be so naive if you've ever spent any time with actual people? Um, Spencer, we've got to take a, a, a break for news. <laughs> and uh, we're going to Spencer Critchley and I are going to continue this discussion again. He's the author of Patriots of Two Nations, and uh, he hosts the podcast Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We'll be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Spencer Critchley, author of the book Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. And uh, before we went to break, we were just talking about the naivete of Karl Marx, who felt that left to our own devices, we were all good, kind, uh, sharing, loving creatures, not to the um, red of tooth and claw that you see in the rest of nature, but, but sort of that we existed on a higher plane which um, I have not studied, Marx, Mr. Critchley, but sounds wildly naive to me. Well, you know, I actually think everybody should study Marx in school. I, th- I think he, um, because if, if only because he's one of the most influential thinkers in history, um, I think he was wrong about uh, his most of his most important ideas. I think there's some stuff about the critique of society as suffering from, of, of engendering uh, alienation and suffering, I think, that is hard to argue with. Um, and did he lay that all at the feet of capitalism? Yeah, the thing is that he was, in my view, a, uh, a reductivist. Like so many ideologues, he, he came up with one big idea and thought it explained everything, and that all hmm. leads to mistakes and intolerance, in my view. So his big idea was that he had discovered a science of history and that it was all run... Um, by economic forces, that economics explained everything. So uh, this was this was the materialistic uh, science of history he came up with, and he argued that humanity started uh, with this communitarian species being, as he called it, and species nature, um, which was very much like Rousseau's noble savage. Although, actually, even in, in my view, even more sort of naive than than Rousseau's view. Uh, But the idea being that people lived in this state of what Engels later called um, primitive communism, where they shared everything and nobody had private property and there was no classes. But the introduction of technology and private property 
enabled the creation of social classes which oppressed the people at the bottom, um, and that that got worse and worse over time, and capitalism represented the peak of that and the worst stage, which was unsustainable and would collapse by itself and be followed by a global revolution, which would return us to the communist, what he saw as the natural communist state, but it'd be industrial communism instead of primitive communism. So that's the Marxist view of history in 30 seconds. Uh, Well, you know, we're hearing similar arguments. God help me. I wasn't going to give her any attention, but uh, Marianne Williamson, the spiritualist who ran against Biden before and has declared that she is going to run against Biden. I've listened to some of her interviews and she kind of says a version of what you just said, that our economic structure is skewed, that capitalism reinforces all the bad things rather than making life better and that we need another form of government if we really want um, to live a different way. It, it's it's I don't know if she's studied Marx, but it sure sounds a lot like uh, what she's saying in her interviews. Well, the thing is that. I mean, capitalism, for sure, if you're going to be greedy, capitalism lets you be greedy, you know, um, big time. You know, it industrializes greed. It makes it as efficient as possible. And capitalism has enabled some terrible abuses. But in my view, to blame capitalism for it is to let human nature off the hook. And and I think if we think we're solving the problem by getting rid of capitalism, unfortunately, what we're going to discover is that people keep behaving the same way, but just in different forms under whatever the next system is, which is what has happened every time people have tried to build a government based on Marxist principles. You just get new forms of oppression and exploitation, which have often been worse because they have uh, done away with um, uh, protections for you know, what they often uh, sneer at, self-interest in the in the interest of the collective. And so and what you end up losing democracy and you end up with with uh, loss of freedom and, you know, the, the atrocities committed uh, under Marxist dictators have been every bit as bad as the ones under fascist dictators. Now, that does not mean that you have to end up there. Um, but my larger point is that the system, changing the system is not going to change human nature, in my view. And that's a crucially important point. And it can be hard to thread this needle. Getting back to what you were saying, you know, yes, the behavior of people who continue to support Trump is terrible. You know, it's a moral failure. They're not just mistaken. They are choosing to behave very, very badly. And I think need to be confronted on that. But where I thread the moral needle is, is in saying, but that does not mean that those people are uniquely bad or that none of the rest of us are capable of being seduced by some other appeal that would lead to other terrible behavior. So the persistence of some of these, what Paul Krugman calls zombie ideas, uh, on the left as well as the right, leads in that direction. So I continue to hear people defending Marx and who apparently have not studied him carefully, or to my shock, have studied him carefully and continue to, to defend <laughs> some of these ideas. But if you actually read his work, as I have, um, you find that intolerance and even violence is embedded in it. Even from the earlier days, people often say, well, the earlier Marx was more sort of, um, you know, he was more sort of humane and and philosophical, but it's all there. You know, the intolerance for disagreement, uh, because he was convinced he was right. And, and, and when you're convinced that you're right, when you're convinced you found the correct answer, whether that's overthrowing capitalism or overthrowing, you know, the libs and the woke, 
either way, when you're convinced that you're right, it leads to intolerance because if you're certain you're right, then the only uh, possibilities with people who disagree with you are, are that they are ignorant or stupid or they're evil, right? Because you're right. So obviously they need either re-education or they need to be, you know, ostracized or put down in some way. And that is, that's, that's what I'm getting at here, that we have to be on guard for. We have to be able to stand up, you know, firmly and clearly against Trumpism, and this, which is really the, the resurgence of American fascism. Uh, we have to identify it as a moral issue, but we have to do that uh, skillfully and not surrender to the temptation to think we've solved the problem by identifying who the bad guys are. Because as they say, Pogo got it right. It's everybody. And what we have to be aware of is, as and Floyd got it right, that this, these are powerful forces in human nature which can be exploited in multiple ways. And that's what we need to build a society that takes that into account. And people like Marianne Williamson and countless people on the left who are still under the influence of what are essentially Marxist and before him uh, Rousseauian ideas about human nature, that it's all natural and communitarian until capitalism comes along, are perpetuating in my view, a, a seriously mistaken view of human nature, one that has been debunked by science. I think in many ways this is just not open for debate anymore, but it continues to be influential. And, you know, you'll hear folks still referring to characters like, well, Mao, for example, or, or um, Fidel Castro, who was, uh, you know, they'll say, well, they had great health care in Cuba, but he also had his political opponents killed. Or Franz Fanon, who's one of the um, leading uh, figures in the decolonization movement. Now, of course, we're in favor of decolonization. You know, of course, we're not in favor of Bautista, the, the corrupt dictator who used to run Cuba. Um, but Franz Fanon recommended bloodthirsty violence um, and was incredibly intolerant of opposition. And, and you find that, you know, throughout the tradition dating back to Marx, unfortunately. And I think we have to we have to recognize that as, as easy as it is for us to see this terrible behavior on the right right now, and it is terrible, we have to recognize it's in human nature. And even um, not only people on the left, but well-meaning people on the left who, who believe they're motivated by helping the oppressed against the powerful and believe that sincerely can be led into... Uh, at a minimum, intolerance and division, and, and in the worst case, towards, towards violence. And I think that the shared problem there is not recognizing the full reality of human nature, which, as I say, you know, much of it is wonderful and produces beauty and grace and charity and love, and, but also much of it is monstrous. But it sounds, it sounds to me, Spencer, like if we, if we really embrace what you just said, we would have no firm positions. I mean, if I have to have, I don't want to have an open mind as to whether or not gay people are sick or evil. Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. Um, you know, I think that we can explain it. To, explain it to me again. Then I got a little lost there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and this is part of the problem that I think we on the left suffer with because we look at everything as a reasoning process. And yes, that's important, but we also need to stand up for 
people of all gender identities, people of all races and religions, uh, everybody, just as a matter of simple, moral kindness, you know, just wanting to live in a world that's ruled by love as opposed to one that's ruled by fear and hate. And we can and, and absolutely should do that. But I think we on the left go astray when we think the solution is to argue pro- programs in this sort of bloodless, amoral, denatured way, especially if we get intolerant about it and insist there's only one way to do this. And this is why we often find ourselves losing people who should support us, because we come, up, we come across with these sort of legalistic, intellectualized arguments. This is one of the biggest problems with critical theory and critical race theory, in my view. It's not the, the goals that are the problem. I wholeheartedly support the goals of equality, full equality and justice for everybody. But it's the sort of intellectualized and often intolerant legalistic approach to it that turns off a lot of people who would... Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have defeated the gremlins once again, so I am back with Spencer Critchley. Spencer, are you there? Hello? Yes, I am. Spencer? Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. We have bested the gremlins. Paul, back at the studio, is keeping them at bay. Uh, I, before I let you go, I wanted to talk about the podcast and um, what interesting conversations you've had lately and what interesting things you've learned. Oh, my gosh, so much. Um, you know, since we've seen this crisis under Trump, uh, the focus of the podcast has really shifted towards the potential collapse of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism, because I just think that's like the giant asteroid heading towards the Earth. You know, it, it outweighs all other problems we're facing. I mean, climate change is up there, of course, but we can't even respond to climate change properly if we don't have functioning democratic society. So I've really been focusing uh, on interviewing people on that topic and thinking about recent episodes. I had a great conversation with Jade McGlynn, who's a leading expert on Putin and the use of the reinvention of memory and history and the rewriting of the present and the future in order to control society. And I think that that is just so important. And there's so many lessons that apply to what Trump and MAGA Republicans are doing. Uh, that all has roots in, once again, uh, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, the usual suspects. Um, had a terrific conversation with uh, Sherry Berman, uh, a professor of political science, uh, on uh, is the game of democracy over? <laughs> and that, you know, all of these things have this depressing uh, common theme, but you, often the, the upside is you get these insights that help you understand what we can do about it, as opposed to just appreciating how terrible it is uh, with more nuance. You know, these, these conversations do lead towards uh, how we can be forearmed with knowledge to know how to respond. Better. Well, as, as, since you had that conversation, you know, I've done some reading that talks about how, you know, um, certain things um, generally looking at history only last a certain amount of time. Um, you know, especially democracies, that they have a almost like they have a sell by date 
Uh, and there's, I read these articles because, you know, the author is usually saying, you know, we're at our sell by date. So don't be surprised if it just goes away. Did your, what did your guest think about that? Well, Sherry Berman actually has an interesting argument that it took France um, since 1789 when they had their revolution until after World War II before they started. They really had a stable democracy. They, you know, they were in the Fifth Republic. Um, that's five attempts with lots of uprisings, revolutions, and coups in the meantime. So uh, she made a really good point that we should uh, we should not be surprised that American democracy is unstable as well. Also, I think that many people have observed that democracy is inherently unstable. It gets back to what I was saying about human nature earlier. Uh, we are this mix of good and bad, selfish and cooperative, and it's hard for us to live together without resorting to just tyranny or having the whole thing fall apart into just, you know, warlordism. And so the system kind of always wants to do that. And I think that the situation we're in now in many ways is, is the result of longstanding neglect as well as other historical forces we didn't really understand. But the mere fact that so many people say things like, I don't care about, about politics, I'm not interested in politics, you know, the whole system's corrupt, what are you going to do about it? That is one of the things that has led us to this situation because democracy is ruled by the people. That's the demos in democracy. It's the people, it's us. And uh, we have responsibilities as well as benefits under this system. And I think that we've been neglecting those responsibilities. That's one of many reasons why we're in this uh, terrible situation we're in, we're in right now. Well, when you look at it, look at it on the surface, you think, you know, m- many of us are ill-informed and some of us are idiots. So maybe we shouldn't be the ones in charge. But then who would you put in charge? I personally would not uh, like to see like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk making the decisions. I wouldn't. I can't think of anybody that I would trust to make these decisions on my behalf. So I guess um, it's our duty to not be idiots and to be better informed. Would that be kind of the bottom line here, Spencer? Well, yes, yeah, so we have to take responsibility for this. We've made many choices, including the way we do education. This also has historical roots. There was a big transition around about the end of the 19th century to make education much more technically oriented and much more practical uh, and moving away from studying history and the classics and poetry and the arts and philosophy, which we're seen as not of practical value. But, I, you know, one thing we're seeing now is the terrifying practical value of, of that kind of knowledge because we're losing our democracy for lack of it. That so much, I often, as you've noticed, refer to history and philosophy in, in talking about what's happening now. And there's just a treasure house of wisdom that we have neglected. It's just gathering dust. And we, we graduate smart people from our schools, including our best schools, who know a lot, and yet they know next to nothing about these subjects that are really, they're the toolkit for a free citizen. You, you must know some history. You must know some, some philosophy. You must know something about where all this came from, or else you just fall victim to it happening over and over again, which is what we're seeing now. As I say, you know, there's, there's really nothing new about Trump. He's just repeating a playbook that goes back to, for example, a guy in classical Athens named Cleon during the Peloponnesian War. He's one of the first identified demagogues, and Trump is basically Cleon in in, a, in an oversized suit and, you know, bad hair and, and half an inch of makeup. Well, uh, looks like I've got some reading to do. Um, if only we learned this stuff in school. <laughs> yeah. We used to, yeah. 
No, uh, it isn't really. It isn't really gone into in any. And 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 frankly, the way schools are going with this whole idea that we should never teach anything that's going to upset anybody. I mean, it's going to that uh, we're going to see more and more pablum. I think being uh, foisted off on our students instead of um, some stuff that would challenge them. Anyway, that's a conversation. That's our next conversation. I also want to talk to you about some people are saying um, that, you know, with the uh, World War II generation dying off, that that kind of visceral memory of of what we did and why we did it and how we need to behave is disappearing. But that's our next conversation, Spencer, okay? Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We are going to take a break, and we're going to be back with mayoral candidate Paul Vallis right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have an election coming up April 4th in which Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson are going to vie to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are joined right now with one of those candidates, Mr. Paul Vallis. Paul, how are you? Are you exhausted? (laughs) You know, I've actually been uh, campaigning for probably about 300 plus days, so Am I exhausted? Not really. Uh, I think I'm on an adrenaline rush. And, you know, when you uh, when you spend a lot of time in the community, sometimes you can draw from from people. I mean, they, there's mm-hmm. an energy transfer. I really believe this. So, no, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm making sure that I get enough rest at night and then I'm ready to go. Well, you know, I was talking to your aide, Sally, earlier, and I told her, I said, you know, uh, I do feel that I have to confront you on the fact that you didn't actually take the polar plunge. You what? You stood there with towels for people when they got out. I mean, come on. I did. I'm a watcher. I used to be a. <laughs> I'm a watcher now. Hey, listen. You know, I don't want to be. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I can't afford. I can't afford to get sick or detracted. But but you know, I've done. Even when I did the polar plunge, I have to admit now on the radio that I wore a wetsuit. So even <laughs> in those days when I was doing the polar plunge, every year I had that wetsuit on. So, you know, well, is that a real, yeah. Is, are you really I've never plunge? even, I've never even been out to cheer people on because you know what? It's cold. And when it's cold, I stay in my house like a normal, rational person. Um, but, you know, I understand. I understand people do it and it's uh, it, it gets a lot of attention for some very worthwhile causes. OK, back to the mayor's yeah, race. I think, yeah, I think they raise, I think they raised about two and a half million dollars. And there were actually people uh, doing the polar plunge that were like in their 80s. So it's. It, oh, my God. It's incredible. Yeah, it I, is incredible. Anyway, um, ever since uh, we had. um the election, I've been reading over and over again that the person who's going to win this is the person who can move to the middle, who can capture the middle of the electorate. Do you think that's true? And if so, how are you going to capture the people in the middle? Look, you know, I think the person who's going to win is, is going to be the person who can capture support throughout the city. And, you know, I've never thought of, about the middle or the right or the left. I mean, I've been pushing issues that I think are relevant to everyone. Look, 
who doesn't want to live in safe and secure neighborhoods uh, where you have beat cops and real community policing, but but community policing with accountability? Uh, who doesn't want to have quality school choices uh, everywhere in the city, regardless of your income or regardless of your zip code? And who doesn't want to live in a city where the budget, uh, uh, you know, the budget documents are actually investment vehicles and, and you know, and where, you know, you're not in a city that constantly is increasing your property taxes, fees and fines. So, you know, at the end of the day, I haven't thought about all I've thought about is the issues. And you can see from the forums I participated in, or for that matter, my speech uh, on, on election night, I've continued with that theme, focusing on the core issues. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with mayoral candidate Paul Vellis. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry, we're having some real gremlins back at the studio today. But to get us back where we were before, I asked our listeners uh, this morning to text in questions. And one of them texted in a question about uh, the police department. And it said, you know, basically, we're short all these officers um, it's going to cost a lot of money to train new officers and deploy them. Uh, they said you, meaning you, Paul, have also proposed additional funding for an improved and modernized police department with taxes as high as they already are. How do you propose to fund these new police expenditures? Well, let me point out that right now we're not filling the police vacancies. I think we're down about 1,100 vacancies, and that's probably costing us $100 million in overtime a year. When I was city budget director, we spent $35 million in police overtime. Now they're spending, I don't know, $175 million more on overtime. And secondly, we're spending $100 million on privatized police on the CTA. And half the riders on the CTA who were polled by WBZ feel that the CTA is not safe. These, these well, CTA actually, I got another question about that, too. So let's also talk about the safety of public transportation. Go ahead. But finish your thought. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and then thirdly, there clearly is some reprogramming and reprioritizing that can be done in the police department itself. You know, it, it is top heavy. You know, there clearly you need to push the police officers down to the local beach. So it's not really a funding issue. You know, I don't think we need to increase funding for police. We just need to spend the money effectively, and we need to to you know gut that hundred million dollars we're spending on privatized. Uh, police who cannot arrest and cannot enforce the law, uh, you know, and they're like minimum wage, and and we can hire another 300 police officers. So basically, it's not a funding issue. But let me tell you what would happen really quickly, uh, and I'll tell you about the CTA and uh, and the the um, if once we get uh, an entire new leadership team in the police department, once we return them to a normal work schedule, once we push the officers down to the local beach, so. If people have a police car to respond to a 911 call in minutes rather than hours, once we do those things, I'm absolutely convinced that we're not only going to slow the exodus of officers, giving us a chance to catch up, but there are hundreds and hundreds of officers who have transferred to other police departments or have retired who will return, who will return. So I'm absolutely convinced that we can swell the ranks with veteran officers returning so that we, and then by pushing the officers down to the local beach, because only 53% of the officers in the police department currently are actually assigned to the local districts, I'm absolutely concerned. I'm actually convinced that we can not only restore beat integrity where you have a police guard covering that local beat, but we can actually put enough officers on the CTA platforms and at the CTA stations so that 
the CTA, uh, traveling the CTA, riding the CTA is as safe as going to the airport. Okay, um, we're getting. I'm also getting a lot of texting questions about different aspects of education. Uh, they kind of boil down. You know, there's uh, there's a voucher system. There's school choice. There's charter schools versus uh, versus non-charter schools, religious schools versus secular mm-hmm. schools. Um, here's just one question. Why should I subsidize private religious schools which practice a specific religion when our First Amendment establishes the separation of church and state? That's one of the arguments against, you know, voucher, a voucher system. Right. Look, let me tell you where I'm at uh, across the gamut. Look, there's no substitution for a strategy that aggressively addresses the issue of quality, public education, publicly funded schools. And I've talked about pushing the money down to the local school district level and restoring the concept of community schools where these schools are open on the weekends, on the holidays, through the dinner hour, just as they were when Gary Chico and I were running the schools over the summer, and then bringing community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, the park district programs to those schools so that after school hours, there are programs, support programs, recreational work-study programs for the young people so we can keep them engaged, we can provide them with help and keep them safe and secure. Only about 60% of the money, of the $30,000 that they're spending per child actually finds its way into the classroom. And I want to change that. That's number one. Number two, we have enough charters. We have 126 charters. You know, it's not a question of adding more charters. And let me point out that I chartered 15 schools. You know, those additional charters were done uh, during, during the Ernie Duncan administration. So a lot of people, you know, try to. Well, that, yeah, that's the rap on you that you're Mr. Charter school. Yeah, well, you know, 15 charters out of 558 schools is not a lot of charges. Let me point out that a number of those schools were actually alternative schools for students who had been expelled, students who had violated the zero tolerance policy. In fact, Jack Weiss and the Alternative Schools Network, they're uh, the Youth Connection Charter Schools that graduates 1,200 students a year. Uh, that was that was a school system. That was a school program that we funded and that we brought into the charter program. And and those schools had existed in the districts for years. So these they educate the kids who have been kicked out or, or the kids who have been released from incarceration and are too old to return. And, you know, I also support... The I'm confused, program. Paul, because I hear the argument made that charter schools exist for the opposite reason, that they can kick out... Uh, the students who don't fit, they can kick out the troublemakers and that those kids have to go back to regular public schools. Um, I, the argument I'm always hearing is that it's sort of a way to send all the troublemakers or the kids who don't fit back to uh, CPS. And you're saying, well, I, I didn't know this. There are charter schools that that are specifically created to deal with students with problems. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the biggest number of charters opened and uh, during my tenure was actually the Youth Connection Charter Schools. Jack Weiss, Google it. The Youth Connection Charter Schools, Jack Weiss, the Alternative Schools Network, Google it. And those schools had already existed in the community. We just brought them into the network and got them state funding. It actually helped increase the number of students we had, which gave us more state aid. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I, you know, I actually opened more alternative schools 
for overage underachieving students who have been kicked out or have been incarcerated who are never going to return to traditional high schools. It, it, it's only later after my departure during when the, you know, when the, uh, uh, the Duncan administration there started doing Renaissance 2010 and those programs. So, you know, some people uh, confuse me, obviously, with, uh, with uh, the other superintendent who followed and the other superintendents who followed me. So that's just a fact. Uh, that's just a fact of life. But, but I do want to point out that we actually opened more traditional schools than we did charter schools. We built 30 school, new schools in, in, during our tenure in the Chicago public schools, in addition to building 48, uh, 48 uh, ad, uh, additions, uh, additions to existing buildings. And if you go to my website, you will, we have an interactive map that shows the 78 school buildings that we built all over the city. And you'll see that, the, and these are public school buildings, and you'll see that the majority of those public school buildings are on the south and west sides. Um, well, this is a topic that I know you've answered in every forum, but my listeners still want you to talk more about it. I have been, um, I've been reading Tracy Kidder's book, Rough Sleepers, about... Uh, uh, the Boston area home unhoused population and one doctor who worked with them for decades. I mean, this is clearly the problem of those without housing and the problem of affordable housing. This is a problem that has been with us for a very long time. And yet people are looking to you and saying, how are you going to, if not fix it, how are you at least going to make it better? Well, this is how you make it, uh, it better, and this is, a, this is an issue that we've discussed in the past, particularly when I was co-hosting prior to announcing. Uh, look, uh, we have thousands and thousands of CHA units that are vacant because nobody's overseeing or monitoring the CHA. They operate. I mean, that's why they're turning over their property to, you know, to, you know, to, uh, you know, to uh, developers. I mean, at the end of the day, the CHA has thousands and thousands of units that could be occupied by individuals who are homeless, by returning citizens who are released from incarceration in need of housing, or for that matter, by uh, immigrants that are coming in. Uh, you know, secondly, there are 15,000 uh, residential units that are vacant and unoccupied because they're in tax courts, uh, tax sales, whatever. You know, the city through eminent domain or through, uh, or through land purchases, go in and purchase those facilities and turn them over to community-based organizations so that they're providing housing not only for the homeless, but they're providing so every community has housing for the homeless, housing for returning citizens. Those are individuals who have been incarcerated. Uh, or for that matter, uh, what about domestic shelters? There's only 150 beds that the city has available on any given night for individuals who have been the victims of domestic violence, yet they get hundreds and hundreds of domestic violence calls a night. So those are, so there is housing stock that people can take advantage of now. But I think what the city needs to do, particularly with individuals who are riding the trains or at the airports or, or, or basically set up camps under the Vidocs, is the city needs to really assemble a task force that includes social services and they need to go out there and armed with potential uh, of, of places where individuals can be relocated uh, to, as well as uh, prepare to evaluate and assess why the people are homeless in the first place, because there's a lot of different reasons 
that people mm-hmm. are homeless or become homeless. And I think they really need to go from site to site and assess and evaluate and try to connect uh, those individuals, not only with uh, shelters, places where they can go, where they'll be safe and secure, but also with the social services and supports needed to keep them from becoming homeless again. You know, in New York City, Eric Adams, the mayor there, has gotten a lot of uh, pushback and negative publicity because he uh, told the police officers there that if there is an unhoused person and they appear to be suffering from a mental illness, that unless the person agrees voluntarily to go to a clinic or go to a shelter, that they can and not only can, but that they should forcibly remove them and take them to a mental health treatment center where they will be involuntary committed for a certain amount of time. What do you think of what Eric Adams is doing there? You know, I think that's careless. I think that's a mistake. Look, my youngest son, um, who, as you know, uh, uh, you know, died of the uh, physical impact of long-term drug addictions. And he, from time to time, we lost him in the community. And from time to time, we had a search for him. And at time, from time to time, he was homeless. And, and you know, we were a family with that, that had some resources to help and assist them. And the last thing you want to do is to have the police play that role, nor would the police want to play that role. I've been a strong advocate for reopening not only the community-based mental health centers, but also making sure that Every area that the police that a that the police district serve has a community health center that can do in calls and out calls, as well as opening opening opioid and drug addiction centers and crisis counseling centers. So when the calls are made, you are sending out social service providers. You're sending out mental health experts to come in to sit down uh, to uh, deal with that person in need and. And and to try to encourage and to help uh, get them the the treatment they need need as well as the shelter that they need. So I think sending the police out there or basically uh, mandating that the police do that, I think it's a big mistake. The police must not be the only responders, you know. And all too often, the police are the only responders. It's not a job that they're trained for. And I'm not suggesting that the police. Uh, that we shouldn't have redundant training. We all we sh- should have continual training, but it's not the primary function of the police. And I think the police are being misused when they're mandated to do that. I think we need to make sure that every police district is connected with local social service providers that can be called in to respond to the 911 calls and the emergency calls that relate to issues other than violent crime or for that matter, because all too often the 911 calls uh, you know, are are just not about, uh, you know, criminal acts, but sometimes, you know, 911 becomes, you know, a an avenue for, you know, for for calling for any emergency. So I think we need to provide the social service supports that police well, district commanders need. There is at least one ward in the city of Chicago that has been trying the experiment of for mental health crises, instead of sending out a police car, sending out a mental health team to deal with that. I have not seen an update on how that's going. Maybe you've got more current information. Is that a program that you would like to see expanded? Yeah, absolutely. And there's no reason why you can't scale. It can't scale it. Look, you know, I think every 
I believe that every police district, and I'm not talking about in the districts, I'm talking about in the areas that the districts serve, should have a, a mental health, community-based and operated mental health center that does in-calls and out-calls and has the ability to respond to calls. You know, so, you know, so when you have a police district commander, you not only have, uh, you have crisis intervention services, you have opioid drug addiction, in-call and out-call services, because, you know, look at all the cases of drug overdoses or individuals uh, who are homeless who have chronic drug addictions and things like that. I mean, do you want, you want the police dealing with that or do you want social services dealing with that? And that's the same thing with the mental health call. You need to have the social service infrastructure in place. So, yes, uh, those type of calls are being responded to by, a, uh, by mental health workers who can go to that site and can respond to that call as the police are all too often uh, required to do. And so I would be supportive of that. And for people to say, well, where's the money going to come from that? I mean, you know, I've always felt that you should dedicate the cannabis revenue, the uh, the gaming revenue, if you legalize video poker revenue, that money could clearly be used to restore community-based social services. Also, if you're billing properly, if you're billing, uh, if you're billing both the state and the federal government, Medicaid, Medicare, insurance companies, a lot of the costs of providing those services can be provided for if you're doing what needs to be done in terms of the documentation and your billing. When I ran the Chicago Public Schools with Gary Chico, we, we, would, we would secure $70, $80 million a year in Medicaid reimbursements because we documented the, the Medicaid-related health care services that we were providing to our students. So the city is squandering millions, tens of, tens of millions of dollars by not bill, having an effective way of billing for services. And I, that's something that I would do to fund these social services. You've gotten uh, a lot of grief because of your past social media, uh, things that were controversial, that were apparently liked by you or um, retweeted by you. You've talked about this before, but what what are you going to do to fix that? And what are you going to do with your social media going forward? Well, look, you know, I, you know, I believe we've already fixed that. And those were not our likes. We were not. And, the, and people from my campaign were not liking uh, those things. Clearly, you know, you have to make sure you've got to make sure that that you're protecting your social media, you're protecting who has access to your social media. You know, I, you know, I, as a rule, don't respond to anything. You know, if I was, you know, I have a tendency if I look at how, how people are responding uh, to uh, some of my po- social media posts, I only look at the critics and I'll dwell over it for, for like hours, if not days. So my approach is, is, is not to like or unlike things at all and just basically stay away. I'm too busy. I'm, I'm, I'm too focused. So, you know, look, every campaign needs to be able to secure their social media. So people are not accessing it. People don't have access who shouldn't have access to it. So, you know, we've explained what we've done to, to take the proper precautions and to, to keep something like that from happening again. And, you know, we just need, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we've got the right safeguards in place. John Catanzaro was just reelected head of the FOP. What's your relationship going to be like with him when you're mayor? Well, I've got to, you know, I'm going to have to negotiate with uh, unions, whether it's Local 2, whether it's John Catanzaro, whether it's Stacey Davis-Gates. And if you've watched the debates that we've had publicly, uh, um, you know, I have uh, I have hardly ever 
uh, taking a shot at my opponents because I realized that whether it's Cam Buckner or anyone else on that stage, or for that matter, Brandon Johnson, these are individuals that I'm going to have to deal with, uh, particularly with uh, Brandon at the teachers' union, you know, when I get elected mayor. So, you know, I, I don't get to select the union presidents that I have to negotiate with. I'm, you know, I'm stuck with them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I think my, my ability to negotiate uh, collective bargain agreements with teacher unions in four and the largest school districts in four different states uh, incidentally, this is not the first police contract that I've negotiated. I've negotiated the police and firefighter contracts and the contracts with all the other unions when I was city budget director. I mean, you've got to deal with the union leadership. My approach, though, is to communicate directly to the rank and file, because when I do that and I'm communicating directly with the rank and file and I'm, I'm accessible to the rank and file and they understand where I'm coming from, then I can speak to the rank and file independent of their leadership. And that's why I've always been able to, to, to uh, negotiate contracts and sell contracts that were responsible. Look, you know this as well as I do, because you've asked me this question so many times. I was able to uh, you know, negotiate an eight-year collective bargaining agreement with the, t- with the uh, police department. And remember, the police had not had a contract in four years that kept 2,000 police officers from retiring because they were not going to wait a fifth year for that contract and their pay raise. I also included all the accountability provisions that were being demanded and that had been included in the sergeant's contract. So I was able to achieve what people thought was impossible. And of course, I participated in the negotiations without accepting any compensation uh, from the union and because I was doing this for for the rank and file police, uh, you know, I was trying to get them a contract and I was trying to get the long demanded accountability provisions put into the contract, which I successfully did. And of course, that contract was passed and that contract was much celebrated. So, you know, I, I, I like to think that I, I really contributed not only to uh, preventing a huge number of police from exiting that would have only made our problems much more complicated, but for also ensuring that you had the right accountability provisions that were being demanded. I will be seeing you this Saturday when you are at the, uh, when you're at the mayoral forum at the Methodist church downtown. Um, Cheryl Corey and I are going to be co-moderating that debate Um, Anybody who would like tickets, uh, you can uh, go online and they are free, but you have to you have to register. And we will be taking questions from the audience. Um, Paul, I look forward to seeing you this Saturday. And I really want to thank you for taking time out of what I know is a ridiculously busy schedule to spend time with us here at CPT today. Thank you for that. Joan, it's always a pleasure to be on with you and uh And I just want to thank you for giving me the time. And I'll see you Saturday. See you Saturday. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. There is an election, April 4th, Wisconsin. will be deciding on their next Supreme Court judge. And here in Chicago... We will be choosing a mayor 
And uh, there will be several older people chosen that day because many of the races went to a runoff. One ward that did not go to a runoff was the 26th ward. That is where former alderman Roberto Maldonado uh, dropped out of the race earlier this year. Um, and uh, there were a small number of uh, three, I believe, candidates, uh, not a huge number. Um, but definitely there were a lot of newcomers in the 26th Ward who wanted to represent it in Chicago City Council. Who won? Jesse Fuentes with 54.4% of the vote uh, facing down two challengers. She will now be starting her first term in the Chicago City Council. She is the youngest woman to be elected to that position, the first woman elected to represent the 26th Ward, and uh, she is also the first queer Latina to be elected. A lot of firsts there. We decided that we would like to uh, have a conversation with Jesse Fuentes and welcome her to the Chicago City Council. Jesse, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Such a privilege. What made you decide to run? Well, you know, our community was in need of a leader that was going to lead with love and care, but more importantly, understood the conditions of the community that we are in today. We are in a rapidly gentrifying community with many families being displaced due to multi-million dollar development. But we've well, uh, first of all, to uh, explain to our listeners where the 26th Ward is and who lives there. Oh, absolutely. We are a ward that represents West Town, Humble Park, parts of Logan Square, El Mosa, and Belmont Cragen. We are an overwhelming majority Latino community. We are the heart of the Puerto Rican community uh, here in Humboldt Park. And uh, we have uh, Latinos from Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador, um, and many other parts of Central America throughout the 26th Ward. Okay. Um, And what are the particular needs? Other than you mentioned gentrification, which in that area is a really big issue. What else is uh, an issue specifically to the 26th Ward? Absolutely. We are in, you know, desperate need of investment in youth programming, street intervention and prevention resources that truly uh, seek to tackle the root causes of violence in our community. Uh, under the Rahm administration, we had two community schools closed in the 26th Ward. We had a public health, uh, mental health clinic closed in the 26th Ward. And we've seen a disinvestment in youth programming across each neighborhood that the 26th Ward represents. And so the 26th Ward needs a, a leader, a leader in city council that's going to ensure that we are addressing those root causes of violence so that we can begin Um, reducing the number of gun homicides, carjackings, and robberies that we have seen in the last two years. When when the city council meets, no one single alder person can accomplish anything on their own. They have to find allies. When you look at the city council members who you know are going to be there, who do you see there as your potential allies? Absolutely. I see Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Alderperson Maria Haddon, 
Uh, we have new city council members coming in, like Alder Person, Julia Ramirez, Jaylu Gutierrez, all individuals that I see as allies, partners, and friends, um, and being able not just to be able to resolve for some of the root causes of violence and displacement in our wards, but across the city of Chicago entirely. You told Block Club Chicago that when you were elected, you broke two glass ceilings. Uh, talk about that. Absolutely. You know, here in the 26th Ward, uh, our communities have always been represented uh, by cis straight men. Uh, we have had, you know, Latinas run for this seat before um, and were unsuccessful in obtaining the seat in their campaign trail. Uh, we were able to uh, become a seat that is represented by a queer Latina. Um, I will be the first woman to ever assume the 26th Ward seat. I will also be the first LGBTQ representative to assume the 26th Ward seat. And I am also the youngest uh, city council member to come out of the 26th Ward. And so to to have been able to make history on many different fronts in this political race, um, is major wins for for every woman and for every LGBTQ leader across the city of Chicago that has been doing trailblazing work to have that representation in city council. You know, any one of those things could have been something that sunk your campaign. How did you get people to really listen to you and really accept you? Was it a, was it a struggle? Were there people you had to win over? Yeah, I mean, there's always on a campaign trail folks that you have to win over that you don't necessarily align with ideologically or politically. And, you know, there were many um, moments at the doors in which we found ourselves flipping votes in our favor. But I think, you know, the recipe for the success that we've seen here in the 26th Ward was to, one, always stay above water, right? There were smear campaigns that tried to take me down, try to list the reasons why I was unqualified. Um, and really, you know, campaigns that use old uh, democratic machine tactics to try to win a race. Um, and it was always important for us to stay on message, to stay true to the platform and to stay above water. But more importantly, you know, I'm an organizer. I'm a grassroots organizer. And we knew from the very beginning that signs don't vote. Negative mailers don't vote. What votes are people. And the only way we're going to get people to cast their votes for us in in the on election day and in vote by mail um, ballots was to ensure that we had built those relationships. You know, we started knocking um, months before the the election, and we made sure that we hit every door. And we were intentional about building relationships and restoring trust at every single door. And we walked the ward entirely three times. Um, My goodness. <laughs> Yes, three times establishing those relationships. By the time that first negative mailer had hit, we were we were in our third walk and our residents knew who I was. But more importantly, I had been honest about mm-hmm. who I am, where I come from and my vision for the 26th Ward. And no one was going to um, be successful in demonizing me because I had already presented my authentic self to the voters. But more importantly, it was important to be personable. It was important to be relatable. And it was important to always follow through. What we see here in the 26th Ward is a a low voter turnout. And that is because our people have lost trust in our ability to govern. And the only way we restore that trust is by building meaningful relationships 
and staying consistent with the things that we are committing to. And that's exactly what we did. And it's what allowed us to land the wind on February 28th. Well, voter apathy is uh, something that is always a problem. I saw one of the reporters whose writing I read did a very unscientific survey. They went out to some of the uh, Hispanic neighborhoods, particularly uh, where men gather before work or after work. And they were talking to people. And a lot of the a lot of the Latino men the reporter was talking to said that they didn't even plan to vote in April. Um, you know, they didn't feel that that there was anything uh, motivating them to vote. Yeah. How d- yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, and go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. You know, it's because for so long, you know, we have engaged voters to participate in casting their votes at the ballot. Um, but then do not do the necessary work to ensure that their voices are heard in the process. You know, I've been saying it since we got on the campaign trail. When we talk about community participation, whether that is through participatory budgeting or whether that is through community zoning, we also have to take into account that many Latino families work two to three jobs to sustain a household, and they're not going to be able to participate in traditional forms of community forums or participatory budget meetings. And so what commitment are we making as elected officials to meet our families where they are at so that we can ensure that their voices are heard? Our families are exhausted, exhausted at only being tapped into when their vote is needed, but then being forgotten after. Jesse Fuente has got 54.4 percent of the vote. She is not going to be in a runoff. She is going to be a 32 year old queer Latina community activist taking her place in the Chicago City Council. We're going to take a break. And Jesse, when we come back, you have a really interesting backstory. And I'd like you to share it with my audience when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by the newly elected 26th Ward Alder person, Jesse Fuentes. She is 32 years old. She has been a community activist. And even though she had two challengers for the seat that Roberto Maldonado stepped away from, she got 54.4% of the vote more than enough to uh, take her seat in the Chicago City Council. She has a really interesting family story. And, uh, Jesse, I know that you have shared this before, uh, and I was hoping you would share your story with our listeners as well. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, I don't deny from anybody where I come from. In fact, I say it is because of my lived experience that makes me uh, the most qualified candidate for the 26th Ward seat. I'm a daughter of an incarcerated parent, and I am a daughter of two parents that suffered from substance abuse for the overwhelming majority of my life. Um, you know, I moved out at a very early age. I moved out at the age of 15, um, having to figure out how to survive and, more importantly, how to make sure that I could still take care of my younger siblings, given the conditions that we grew up in. And, you know, it took me a long time to figure out how to grapple with that trauma, but more importantly, how not to be angry and how to engage in a process of healing that would be conducive for the life that I wanted to live. Um, But it it took a while, right? And so 
you know, folks seen it in the 26th Ward when my opponent decided to drop a mailer that was um, an articulation of my juvenile and early adult record. And yeah, I was very honest with constituents from the very beginning that it was um, the experience of some of the poor decisions I had made and learning from those decisions that made me become an activist and an educator in this community. But more importantly, it was the privilege I had of having a community that did not discard me for those resources, but rather invested in my growth and my political consciousness. And so, you know, I had the privilege of attending a, a small community alternative school that had a culturally competent curriculum that really turned me into the activist that I had become uh, and that I still am today in this community. I've dedicated my entire political and professional life uh, to the 26th Ward because it is the 26th Ward that saved my life. Um, without some of the services that were in the community when I was 17, 18 years old, I couldn't, I would not be on this interview with you today saying that we had made so many historical um, marks on this election had it not been for organizations that invested in my development, my growth, and my healing. And so I'm extremely privileged to be here, but more importantly, um, it is those experiences that help inform my public safety policies that allow me to understand that there's so much investment that we need to fight for in our community in order to ensure that young people who are living a very similar experience that I was living um, as a young person in this community can receive the resources that they deserve so that they, too, can become agents of change in our community. When you're going door-to-door talking to people, how do you tell them about this? You know, my parents uh, suffered from substance abuse, and I left home at 15, and I got into a fight uh, at high school. I mean, do you... How do you how do you share like that? And what are what was the reaction when you told people your story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, often when you when you door knock, individuals want to understand. Like, are you are you door knocking because you just want my vote, and then you're going to disappear? Or constituents want to understand what are your policies? How are you going to make this community safer? Or they want to understand, what, like, what's your why? Why are you running? And what makes you more important than the next person that's going to come door knock and ask me for the same vote? And, you know, when I received those questions, it was an opportunity to share my why. Why did I spend the last 15 years working in this community? Why have I spent the last 15 years in education being a restorative justice practitioner why am I invested in public safety measures that are working to address the root causes of violence? My why is my lived experience. My why is my ability to be able to overcome some of those barriers as a young person. Um, and that when I'm working with young people, I see myself, I see myself in them. And, and that's why I work so hard. And my work ethic is unmatched. It's different um, because of who I am and where I grew up. And so when I'm sharing these lived experiences with constituents, there's many of them that can relate, right? Because of whether that was their lived experience as a young person or whether they have children, nieces, nephews, or had aunts or uncles that experienced something similar, or they also see young people in our community who are in pain and want someone who's going to be unwavering in their commitment to provide a safer community for them. And so, you know, I, it was, 
it was such a beautiful journey to be on the campaign trail and to have received so much love and respect for my lived experience and my journey politically and professionally. And we've seen that. We've seen that with folks who came out and voted. We're still seeing it as numbers uh, come in and, and my percent, my win percentage gets higher with mail-in ballots that are still being counted. You know, people are hopeful that, you know, I could have had a lived experience like the one that I've been honest about, but be someone who is running in this community and who has been an activist for so long. It provides our community and our young people um, hope in a moment in which they need it so much. Jesse, why is it that some people go through terrible trouble like you did with a dysfunctional family and so much responsibility and anger about that as a as a young person why is it that it that some people seem to succumb to that and yet you know you clearly are somebody who took all of that and forged something new and better with it what was it about you that made you able to rise above what happened to you when you were growing up yeah well, it wasn't it wasn't at all something that was in me. Rather, it was the people around me who believed in me despite the chip on my shoulder. The people who saw something in me when I couldn't see it myself, right? Like I was seventeen, eighteen years old and just trying to figure out like how to survive. But yet there are folks who see leadership possibilities in me and invested in that. Right? Like they, just, they didn't discard me before the six I was making, but rather they invested in the possibility of who I could be. And, and that's what made the difference. And for me, that's why it's extremely important to ensure that when we are talking about violence prevention and intervention in our community, we're not talking about incarcerating young people of color in our community, but rather we're talking about building institutions that can be filled with individuals like the folks that had hope for me. Um, you said, if I, if I want, you said when you were 17, there were people in organizations that really made a difference in your life. What is one person or one organization that you credit with helping pull you out of all that? Oh, absolutely. It was the alternative school that I had the privilege of attending. It was Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos, Puerto Rican High School, an alternative school that has been in this community for over 50 years. Um, and, you know, it was in that school where I learned to be proud of being a queer Latina in this community. It was that school that made me be proud of being a Puerto Rican in Humble Park. But it was also that institution that allowed me to understand my lived experience through a greater social context. Um, it was also where I learned to forgive my parents for their own historical and generational trauma. Um, it was where I became politicized, and it was, it was there where I made a decision to be an activist and to pay it forward for the rest of my life. We have about a minute left. Name one thing, either a policy or a program or an ordinance, or a topic, one thing you want to do as an as an older person? Absolutely. I want to ensure that we can realize and pass treatment. It is going to be that that makes the difference in our communities when we can truly address the causes of violence through 
quality mental health. Jesse, I think we lost Joan, but I want to thank you for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Back. We got Joan. And yes, Jesse. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah. Jesse, thank you. Uh, thank you for being with us. I really look forward to watching your career on the Chicago City Council. I think you're going to be terrific. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You have a beautiful day. You too. We're going to take a break and we're going to see if we can uh, kill a few gremlins while we're uh, in this break. And we'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the races, one of the aldermanic races, where there is going to be a runoff is in the 48th Ward. You've uh, heard me talk to her before on this broadcast. She is now one of the two candidates in that runoff. Lenny Manah Hoppenworth is here to uh, talk about her campaign. Lenny, welcome back. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me on again. I have missed you. <laughs> well, you know, I enjoy following your social media, particularly uh, the posts where you are uh, striking dance poses. I didn't realize that you had a dance background. Oh, yeah. Oh, dance has been uh, the way that I've been able to actually socialize. I was painfully shy. When I was a toddler and my parents, we lived in South Chicago at the time, took me to Calumet City to Rozak's dance studio. And I remember, I remember that they didn't want to dance. I didn't want to do it. They had to basically drag me out of the dressing room and I wouldn't do anything. So Miss Rozak at the time, she sat me down in the corner right next to the pianist. And I remember watching them move and have fun and maybe I was tapping my feet or maybe <laughs> I was bopping my head but she said do you want to join and and so I skipped on over and and then at one point she said Lenny you have to stop moving we're we're not moving right now so <laughs> I think that sometimes you just have to be asked in certain ways instead of dragged along it seems so hard to believe that someone who is as comfortable and outgoing as you was 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 shy and and reluctant to engage you have as we say really come out of your shell thank you joan yeah i i think that dance has allowed like for instance i can't wait to teach you argentine tango joan oh. you're gonna love, you're gonna the reason why I love Argentine tango is because you're using all of your senses, especially as we're still, you know, moving through this pandemic. Coming back to tango has um, enlivened me. You, you stand in front of your partner. There is a lead. There is a follow. But also with every step, there's a lead that waits for the follow. And so, the, in effect, you're both leading and following at the same time. It's a beautiful dance. It's improvised. And it really, uh, it, it calls on a human's ability to trust one another to the point where if you're following, the bliss is when you can close your eyes and just love the dance and, um, you know, listen to the music and feel the floor underneath you and embrace your partner and I think those are the kinds of things that I've missed during the pandemic. Um, I wish that our society would think about doing that a little bit more and um, mm. prioritize 
things art and dance and being with one, one with one another um, those kinds of one-on-one interactions even if you're don't if you don't talk to each other um, you can uh, you can make real connections with each other that um, that we need right now you know I, I think that too many times we we feel like this world is um, too cruel you know not caring and and in in so many ways it is which is one of the reasons why you know I'm very grateful to have conversations with you Joan because I know that you're out there always talking to people you know touching base with them seeing how they're doing and that's really how we build communities so I thank you for building the community that you have been well I I appreciate that uh, that's a very nice thing to say uh, you faced um, you and uh, Joe Dunn faced uh, ten or ten or eleven other candidates. You two were the top two vote getters. Now you have to face the voters again, April fourth. How are you going to set yourself apart from Joe Dunn? Yeah. So the race, there were ten of us, and I still believe that I am the best candidate for this ward but when we were running it was really everybody's um, game to win and we had many different opportunities to be in front of voters to be um, participate in forums to talk to folks like you Joan um, to, to, to make our case and I'm glad that I, I made it out on top um, with with Joe, and in fact, you know this ward is so small, Joan. It's if if you don't, if your listeners don't know, it's a 48th ward on the north side, and it includes Edgewater, Andersonville, and Uptown. This this ward is so small. You know, if I start walking um, in the morning, I'm sure to run into the same people in the evening if I take another walk, and um, the same thing happened today. In fact, I took a walk this morning. Um, to meet with um, friends, and I, I met up with, um, you know, Joe Dunn, <laughs> and was to be on a walk. Um, who, who said to themselves, um, they they were just talking, and um, and uh, and I believe one of them said, "Yeah, Lenny, really, she worked really hard." And then I turned the corner, and there I was. So maybe that's, that's key. People just need to say my name, and and I'll just show up. Um, yeah, so I think that the, the path to victory is just showing up. It really has to be that way in a very local position like this, um, being on the ground, literally on the ground, talking to people, um, meeting them where they're at, whether it's at their doors or um, in a cafe or, you know, yesterday I was walking down Clark Street. I was talking to somebody. I almost walked into atmosphere with them because they're on their way to Madonna Rama. But, you know, that's that's really what has to be talking to everybody wherever they're at, um, because that's what an older person does. That's what an older woman needs to do um, at the train station, you know, calling them if I can't reach them in, in person, because, as you know, we have all of Sheridan Road, um, which are many are high rises and are and, and it's really hard to knock on their doors. So um, calling them, seeing if they'll pick up the phone and having a conversation is great. Um, and lots of lots of meetings, you know, small meetings at coffee shops and really sitting down and, and talking about the issues that are important to them, not just the whole of the 48th Ward, but truly 
um, on a block by block basis, because as you know, we live in the city of Chicago where you turn the corner and it's like you're in a whole different neighborhood. And truly that, that is the way it is with some of these blocks. So when you're talking about what is important to one person, it's, it's different. You know, if you, if you are here and then you turn the corner two blocks um, in a, in another area, you are, you are in a whole different neighborhood. We have one of the most diverse and, um, and welcoming ward, I feel, in terms of identity. We have one of the highest populations of LGBTQ people. I, in fact, I've, I've talked to maybe in the last two weeks, five people from California who truly moved over here because they wanted to have a different quality of life and live in a place where they felt like they were politically safe, you know, and I, and I, in a lot of ways, John, I miss, I say I miss you because I, I have been somebody who has been uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook a lot within the last, you know, seven years. Um, and I've put myself on a diet because I've had to, you know, be really in person <laughs> with people, but I see that you're, you know, you're kept keeping up on, so there's, there's a lot of stuff happening at the federal level and it, and everything is on fire. And what I'm really excited about though, is that you're, you're keeping in touch with all of those issues. I want to bring them down to the local level because that's where the conversations need to happen because that's where miscommunication happens. Right. Um, so that, that's what I'm excited about. Um, well, speaking I of know, social media, did I see a picture of you and Nancy Pelosi? Oh my goodness. You know, I am not somebody that meets a lot of celebrities ever in their life. And I'm like, Oh, Nancy Pelosi. Um, cause I, you know, as a, as a grassroots person for Indivisible Illinois and Indivisible IL9, we have been on those calls where Nancy Pelosi starts out the call and, you know, she rallies all of the grassroots. And so I know her voice, I have in her head, but, but to meet her in person and to shake her hand, I was so nervous. <laughs> you know, you see somebody who has made history really, truly. Mm-hmm. In a time that, you know, we needed unity, we really needed leadership, we really needed that voice of strength and and hope that it's going to be okay, and to keep everyone together who is trying to trying to keep it together in really tumultuous times. That was Nancy Pelosi for for us, for for Democrats. And I was so grateful to have the opportunity. I was invited by um by state rep um, Teresa Ma, who has been a champion for my for me and my campaign, um, and she was being honored um, at this event this weekend. And so I I got to come into the VIP room. I got to shake her hand. I got to tell her that I was part of the Indivisible Movement, who has been with her, you know, through these very tumultuous times. And as, as soon as she heard Indivisible, her face lit up. And then I told her that I was running for office and, and both her and Speaker Welsh, they were just so delighted. Um, and, and then she talked about the importance of how diversity matters, especially for women and for women of color. And she's so grateful during her talk on, on the stage to know that people are running at their aldermanic level. She said that. And so I was, I was just so grateful that she she talked about how important it is for people to step up, 
you know, from who, wherever you are. And, and one of the things about the 48th Ward is that we've had, you know, an incumbent who has been here for a long time and very, you know, well liked by many people. And so people were afraid to, to hear that he was stepping down. But what I saw was an opportunity for community members to step up and to say, you know, there's a void. And so this is what we can do together. And that's that's what it's not technically a primary, as you know, Joan, because it, anybody could have won the election if they had won 50 percent. Yeah. One on February. But with so many people running, what we had was an opportunity to talk about all the issues in the 48th Ward and not just the 48th Ward, but across the city of Chicago that we're all very concerned about. And this ward is, you know, a source of progressivism for me as the director of operations for the Women's March Illinois and organizing at a state level and seeing where the buses went from Illinois to D.C. and back in 2017, I saw that many of those buses came from this ward, you know, this ward, John. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just very excited to, to have this opportunity to to run and and to have the chance to represent this know. ward. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is going to be a runoff April 4th. To, dis- to select the new 48th Ward Alder person, I'm talking to one of the two people you will see on your ballot. Lenny Manal Hoppenworth is here, and uh, she is a community activist. She has been part of a local school council, and she has a really interesting backstory. For our listeners who haven't heard you before, Lenny, tell them uh, your background. Yeah, uh, I was born on uh, Chicago's South Side uh, to um, nurses who were um, brought, who came here from the Philippines as nurses. And we, um, I'm, I'm just very grateful that I had the chance to be in a community of um, so many Filipino families on the South Side who were still in touch with today. But we moved to the suburbs and since then lived um, in south on the Chicago South Side. And um, I went to school at Chicago Academy for the Arts for High School, where uh, we talked about my dance background. Um, I I loved um, learning more about all the arts, including theater and dance. Um, I graduated from UIC as a physical therapist, and with and I met my husband there. And when we were looking to plant our roots, a friend of ours said, go check out um, Andersonville. It's only four blocks long, but it's like a village in the middle of the city. So we so we ventured over there and we found the 48th Ward. Um, and when I left physical therapy, um, I decided to open up my own shop in Andersonville, which is a dancewear store, which is on the corner of Clark and Berwyn. So please come and get your tutu and your tiara, Joan. <laughs> You? you know, years ago, my partner Ray and I, we used to take ballroom dancing lessons, and I think I bought a pair of shoes there. I uh, I think so. And I, I, if we're ever going to do it again, I need to get new shoes because those uh, I've outgrown them. <laughs> yes, yes, come by, come by. We're on the second floor. We'd love to. Have, and we have tango, actually. Tango on Monday nights at 8 o'clock. So you and your listeners are absolutely welcome to join as a beginner class. Um, Sorry, I interrupted. Continue on. No, 
So no, so I, so my, um, my kids, you know, um, I, I wanted to have a life where I didn't have to commute, you know, an hour away to work in the Cook County healthcare system as a physical therapist. And, and so my kids went, my uh, son at the time went to work with me, um, uh, and grew up in the, in the dance store and they went to the Chicago public school, which is right down the street from them. And they went on to public high school from there. And we were living our lives until, you know, 2016, I got really, I got really mad. Like a, a lot of people did. Um, uh, and so I wanted to get active and I looked online where everybody was looking for something to do. And I found the women's March. I became the director of operations there and, and the and came back wanted to continue to do more i found on google a um a document that says you know you are represented by someone in congress and that's the closest person you'll get to um the president so learn who your congressperson is and lo and behold it's um, jan Schakowsky in the ninth congressional district and on from there we got to meet all of the other uh, representatives in this area um and lo and behold they're progressive people so we work together to work on things like, um, you know, reproductive justice and protecting our health care at the time, you know, and uh, through the pandemic, making sure that people were safe um, and healthy. And I, I was also very involved in my kids' high school and the local school council, as you know, we're, we're trying to keep people safe during the pandemic and not only just safe um, health-wise, but also um, body, mind, and spirit, um, especially for people who come from all over the city to Jones and black and brown students who don't necessarily feel safe in the presence of police. So um, voting on um, the removal of SROs in the schools is something that we really advocated for because we want um, we want resources to go towards things like social services and librarians and, and the arts. So those are the kinds of things that we've been working for this whole time. And, and at the same time, I continue to be a, a member of the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce because we want our small business corridors to bounce back from this pandemic. You know, people are finding different ways to work. And as you know, a third city council is, is not immune to that. They have decided that they wanted to retire. And, then, and that's like that with many different sectors. So we want... I have a new office at 1129 West Bryn Mawr, and I'm looking at the door, and um, there's an empty storefront there, but they filled it with art. You know, what can we do to fill empty storefronts with something joyous, like my campaign, Joan, where you can visit me at <laughs> West Brynmark, um, but also help people who like um, someone who walked into my office today. He has aspirations to open a coffee shop down the street. You know, we have to make it easier for people to open up small businesses because more people, especially independently, locally owned businesses are going to be stakeholders in their community and they will want to stay. And landlords who want to fill their empty storefronts want to hear that people are invested in making the community better. So um, those are the things that I have been working on and that I'll continue to push for. I'm a renter. Um, I, I, you know, we have been renters for 24 years, um, not only in my apartment, but also my business of 20 years. And rents continue to um, in increase. And I don't want to be displaced as development happens in the ward. And it is going to happen. The red line is undergoing, you know, historic um, investments, the first in 100 years. 
And um, these stations are going to have more affordable housing per the equitable transit-oriented development initiative of the city. And so as development is happening in the ward, I want to be in a place, in a position where I have a voice at the table that can represent the people in this ward who want to know how we are making decisions that are affecting their daily lives as business owners, as new families who are moving in here, as seniors who have been here for generations, as new people who are moving into rental buildings and want to ensure that um, their buildings are also being taken care of, as well as new buildings that are affordable for people to, to rent. Um, the, the buildings that already exist, we need to make sure that they're well taken care of. And as we're continuing to develop, Joan, making sure that it is in a way that is sustainable and responsible, in a way that um, I can be ensured that my children and their children and their children are going to have <laughs> an actual place to live, you know? Um, so how are we building towards a more sustainable economy, a circular economy, economy that is going to be health, healthy for the planet and for everybody, not just on the north side here, but across the city? Because things that we do here, they, they can be a standard for what we're doing across the city. As you know, you know, the, the 48th Ward is, is um, a well-invested Ward, you know, uh, in terms of city resources, um, and we we are very privileged in that in so many ways. But not every, you know, like um, your life expectancy is also it can be predicted by your zip code, and that should not yeah. be. No, anyone who lives in Chicago should be able to walk down the street and feel like they are safe, they are taken care of. They're going to um, be able to afford to live in their neighborhood or work close to where they live, cut down commute times, make sure that transit works for all of us, because that is the thing that really glues us all together. Well, Lenny, one thing I know for sure is that nobody is going to outwork you. You, uh, if you follow her on social media, man, she is everywhere and she is everywhere all at once, just like the movie. Uh, Lenny Manal Hoppenworth, running for Alderperson of the 48th Ward. Thank you, Lenny. Thank you for being here. Hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, John, for having me. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Uh, Santita kicks us off tomorrow at 6 a.m. I will be here tomorrow at 2 p.m. So until then... Stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening and good night.